Today's scripture reading is from the book of Apostle John, chapter 7, verses 37 through 52. Rivers of living water. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were, were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus has, was not yet glorified. Division among the people. When they heard this word, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ has come from the offsprings of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is the word of God. Thank you, brother. And thank you, Chad, for reading. Hi again, New Hope. Once again, it's great to see you all. Great to worship God. Welcome new members and do all of this in Christ's name and for his glory, not, not for our own. That's for sure. This past week, as many if not all of you know, 50 people died as a result of a violent and unexpected attack on two mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand. 34 people are still hospitalized from those attacks. 12 of those hospitalized patients are in critical condition. One of them is a four-year-old little girl who's just moved to another facility, and she's still in critical condition. When we gather together, it's not to distract ourselves from the evil around us. When we come into this room, it can feel kind of insulated, and yet we're not here to ignore the violence and the pain and pretend that it's all okay. Instead, what we want to do as we gather, and what we need to do is, is seek hope from Christ as we gather together. Hope in the face of the violence and the pain and the evil. We need to gather as a church to bring the pain of our neighbors to God, and that includes the pain of our Muslim neighbors in Christ Church, New Zealand. But we also want to come to bring our pain and our confusion, and our suffering to the Lord. Not, not, not put it out of mind so that we can worship. No, what God calls us to do is to bring the pain, bring the confusion, bring the suffering to him. And expect, ask him and expect him to minister to us in the face of that pain. So I'm going to invite you to do that with me today as we pray for that community, communities in Christchurch, New Zealand, and for ourselves. Father, we come to you seeking peace 
and hope and comfort. And many of us gathered here today are convinced that we can't find it anywhere else. We've tried, and none of it lasts. But when we come to you, when we keep coming back to you, we find true comfort, true peace, true hope. And so we ask that you would bring real comfort and peace and hope to those suffering communities in Christ Church New Zealand, for the families and friends especially of those who were murdered, and for those who still, even now, are hanging on in hospital rooms throughout that country. We pray for their families, Lord, and we pray for those survivors. And we ask that you would give them such a comfort, such a hope that isn't just temporary, but hope that's eternal, that is, it would be real hope rooted in Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection. We pray for justice. We ask that justice would be served and quickly for the perpetrator that has been identified and perhaps anyone else who was a part of this too who has yet to be identified. Lord, would you guide investigators, prosecutors, judges. Lord, we pray for repentance and faith for that young man who has given his heart over to evil, who is, in fact, an evildoer, murderous and hateful. Father, we ask for you to mercifully rescue him from himself. Lord, the consequences of what he's done are laid out before him, but Father, we pray that you would address the eternal consequences of what he's done and do so through Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that you would help us and help those suffering people in New Zealand to trust you. Lord, we ask that as your church, we would trust you until you fulfill your promise to make all things new. Your promise to wipe away every tear. And that day when death and mourning will be no more. We await you. In your name. Amen. We're coming back to the Gospel of John today after being away from the Gospel of John for a while while we studied the book of Daniel. And I I thought a good place for us to start as we jump back into John is to remember why this Gospel of John exists. The author gives us a purpose statement. It's in chapter 20, verse 31. Let's read it together. Why is this book in the Bible? Well, here's what John says. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. What I like to do when I see you in the Bible like that is put my own name in there, and I invite you to put your own name in there as well. This book is written and it's here and it's being preached and read today so that you and I would hear and see Jesus and believe that he is the Son of God, that he is the Christ, the chosen Savior, and that by believing we may have life in his name. So if you are a follower of Christ, this is a chance, as we get back into the book of John, for you to see Jesus again, know him more deeply, love him more deeply, understand who he is more and more as we go through. And if you're not a disciple of Jesus Christ, you wouldn't identify yourself as a Christian, then 
this is a great opportunity for you to find out a little bit more about who this Jesus is. And, and this is a great text that we're coming back to today. It's a great way for us to jump back in because what we see here in John chapter 7, verse 37 to 52, is Jesus, the quintessential Christ. It, it, it's him doing what we love to see him do. He's calling He's inviting you. And he comes with a promise. Promises that only he could keep. Now at this point in John chapter 7, when we get to this part of the story, Jesus is already experiencing a lot of opposition. Um, Some people want him dead. He's at a feast here, the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem. Um, This is a feast of remembrance. You can read more about it in the book of Leviticus, chapter 23. But it's a feast of remembrance, and it's a a festival where all the Jews would gather in Jerusalem to remember who their God is and to remember, among other things, how their God preserved them and provided for them while they were wandering in the desert for 40 years. What would happen on each day of this week-long festival is priests with these golden pitchers they, they would walk to the, the, the pool of Siloam, which was a, a pool there in, in Jerusalem, and they'd collect water. And then from the pool of Siloam, they'd go to the temple and they would pour water on the altar. And while they were pouring it, tradition says that the, a choir would be singing these words from Isaiah 12, with joy you shall draw water from the wells of salvation. With joy you shall draw water from the wells of salvation. It was a kind of water festival each day, this water ceremony. And that's significant. It'll become significant for us as we read through the rest of this account. And, and through this water ceremony, they were doing a couple of things. On the one hand, they were acknowledging the fact that they needed rain, and so they were pleading with God to give them rain. But also, they were looking back and remembering how the Lord had provided water and food for them while they were wandering through the desert so many years earlier. They were remembering things like this, when God provided this rock, and he brought water out of this rock for them. And we can read about that in Numbers 20. Water from a rock of all places to feed a whole nation, to to quench the thirst of an entire nation. So this is when we come here to to verse 37. It's the last day of the feast. It's the great day, as John says. And as we look through this, just two points and then a question. The two points are this. We're going to see the call. We're going to see the response. And then a question. And the question is, how are you responding? So the call, the response, and then how are you responding? So let's look at the call that Jesus issues here in verse 37 to 39. He says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out. He shouted, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So what is Jesus offering here? He's offering water. But then John, the narrator, steps in and says, it's not just water, it's more than water. When he's talking about water, what he's really talking about is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus 
would promise to all who believed in him. Later on in John chapter 14, Jesus says, when I leave, when I die and I ascend to return to my father, I'm going to send a helper. Then later on, he calls him the spirit of truth. And he says, this spirit of truth, this helper, he's going to be with you forever. He's going to dwell with you. And then get this, he's going to dwell in you. The spirit of truth, this helping spirit. We also know him as the Holy Spirit. He had not yet been given What does that mean? Did he not yet exist? Of course he existed. The Holy Spirit has existed eternally. The third person of the triune Godhead, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, living in this mysterious union with each other, one God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit already existed, but what does it mean that he had not yet been given? That can be confusing too, because if you read the Old Testament, you find that the Holy Spirit is at work. The Holy Spirit was at work in creation. The Holy Spirit comes and fills people in the Old Testament. When John says he had not yet been given, what he means is that he had not yet been given in the way that he would soon be given. You see, in the Old Testament, we see the Holy Spirit coming and working, but what we don't see is the Holy Spirit coming to all of God's people, all of them, and filling them and dwelling in them 24-7, 365, your helper, your comforter, your God with you. Address you. And that was some, that was a reality that was still yet to take place. You see, Jesus here was still alive and walking on earth, but soon he would die. He would be crucified. And after he was crucified, he'd be buried. And after he was buried, he would be resurrected. And after he was resurrected, he would ascend That is, he'd return to the right hand of his father, and then after he ascended, he would be glorified. Glorified. Jesus Christ is now glorified. He is reigning in power and might. That hadn't happened yet here. And so the Holy Spirit had not yet been given. But Jesus is saying, to all who come to me and believe in me, I will give you the Holy Spirit to fill you, not just a taste of the Spirit, but a filling, a constant presence of the Spirit. And you know, when you read Romans 8, verse 9, you get another name for the Holy Spirit. Remember, he said he's called the Holy Spirit, he's called the the Helper, he's called the Spirit of Truth. In Romans 8, he's called the Spirit of God. And then a little later in that same sentence, he's called the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of Christ. So again, what is Jesus offering here? Who is Jesus offering here? He's offering himself, his spirit, his presence. He's saying, come to me, and here's what you will get in abundance, like a running river, me in you. It's a huge promise, and it's really comforting to know that Jesus never overpromises. Um, you and I are used to overpromises. Maybe you overpromise. I find myself sometimes saying making promises that I can't keep. Do you ever find yourself doing that? Or have others done that to you? We're used to it. We're used to big talk, right? People say things like, listen, I'll never leave you. I will give my everything to you. And then they bounce. They leave. But, but no, one, no one lives up to those promises the way Jesus does. 
Every promise of God is yes and amen in Jesus Christ. We sang that just a moment ago. And, and who is this promise to? Who is this offered to? Look, look at verse 37 and 38. It's to anyone, whoever, anyone who believes in me. You see how radically open and inclusive that promise is? There's only one restriction. It's only thirsty people who need apply. It's anyone, it's whoever thirsts. Thirst for what? We need to ask. And Jesus doesn't specify. And I think that's really interesting that he doesn't specify. You see, he doesn't say anyone who, tr- who thirsts for truth or anyone who thirsts for righteousness, anyone who thirsts for forgiveness. He doesn't say that. He includes that, but he doesn't specify those things. Now, I hope, I hope that each one of us here thirsts for truth. I hope that we thirst for righteousness, a righteousness that's not in us, but a righteousness that we can only get from Jesus. I hope that all of us thirst for forgiveness and find that forgiveness in him. But he doesn't specify that. He just says, if you thirst, period. So what are you thirsting for? Maybe you thirst for acceptance or friendship because you've been lonely for so long and you've experienced the darkness of loneliness so long. You want friendship and you're, you're, you're thirsting for it. Or maybe you, you, you thirst for wholeness because you feel broken. Maybe you thirst for relief because suffering has been going on for so long for you. You just want a brief moment of relief. Maybe you thirst for peace. Is that what you thirst for? Because your, your life is filled with turmoil or your life is filled with guilt. You're carrying it everywhere you go. You can't get out from under the guilt. Thirst for love? Because you've been rejected? You thirst for cleansing? Do you, does anyone thirst for cleansing? Because you feel like you've made a mess of yourself. You, you, you've dirtied yourself. You've left yourself filthy. Or others have, have made you dirty. Or at least you think they have. You just want to be made pure. Thirst for freedom? Anyone thirst for freedom? You feel so tangled up. Maybe it's with addiction, tangled up in unhealthy relationships, and you just want to be loosed from all of that. Maybe you thirst for safety and protection because you've been hurt, betrayed, and violated so badly. What, what do you thirst for? Whatever you thirst for, I want you to see it as included in Jesus' word of offer here. He has it in mind when he says, whoever thirsts. You see, because whatever you're thirsting for, Jesus offers more than what you're thirsting for. He offers deeper fulfillment that goes beyond your surface thirst. That's why he he says this here. It's like he's saying, come to me for a sip. You're going to get a river of living water. 
because he knows what's deep down beneath the surface thirsts that are driving you. He knows that what you need more than anything is relationship with God. Because you were made by God for God. You were made to need him. This means that if you don't have a relationship with God, then you need your sins forgiven. You need to be accepted and adopted into his family and loved by him forever. And Jesus is offering that. And all those other thirsts that you have kind of layered on top of that deep, deep thirst that you may not even be aware of, Jesus is saying, I got all that. I can fulfill all those things. You know, Augustine, who's a 5th century African philosopher and priest, He prayed these words. He said, Lord, you made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. You you made us for you, and so we can't have peace until we get you. Another author by the name of Bruce Marshall, he wrote these words that are sometimes erroneously um, attributed to someone else, but he wrote these words. He says, the young man who rings the bell at the brothel, is unconsciously looking for God. What is he saying that? What what does he mean here? The the young man, he's trying to point out this, 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 maybe it's an obvious truth, maybe it's not obvious, but it's this truth that the person who is seeking to fulfill and quench any thirst whether it's a legitimate pursuit or an illicit pursuit, deep down, whether they realize it or not, there's a deeper thirst that needs to be quenched. And it can only be quenched by God himself. Think about it this way. Jesus says elsewhere, come to me, all who are tired and burdened, and what? I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Elsewhere in the book of John, we saw this Months back, he calls himself the bread of life, and he says, come to me and eat. I'll satisfy your hunger. So what is Jesus doing here? L- listen, he's, he's offering, he's saying, I can quench your thirst, I can satisfy your hunger, your starvation, and I can give you rest. Notice that all those things are elemental, basic human needs. We all need rest. You will die without rest. You all need bread or you all need food. You will die without it. And you all need water or you will die without it. See, he's not offering us here just comforts in a a silly way. He's offering us life-sustaining, elemental rescue. Rest, food, quenching. He says, I've got that for you. I've got that. While you are seeking to quench your thirst with other things that will not satisfy you, I've got the only solution to your deepest thirst. And really, in context here, if we think about what's going on, remember I said that this festival was all about remembering how God had provided for his people while they were in the desert. So he's talking about thirst here in the context of people thinking about when they were in the desert. 
Thirst in the desert can kill you. So when he's offering a quenching here, he's he's offering life. This is the difference between life and death. When you're in a desert, the difference between drinking and not drinking is life and death. He's not saying, I'll make you feel better. He's saying, I'll, I'll make you live. And as a result, you will feel better. He's offering eternal life. It, it's real life as it was meant to be lived. The kind of life that you were made for. A life that, that's rooted in a reconciled, a, re, a healed relationship with your God. And it results in the Spirit coming to live in you to give you peace and power. Where are you trying to quench your thirst? Where are you trying to satisfy your hunger? Where are you trying to find rest? What you thirst for, whatever it is, listen, whatever you thirst for in its essential form is only in Jesus Christ. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a Christian, I want to point this out to you. This is, we don't see it in this translation here in John chapter 7 in this English Standard Version that I'm reading from, but if you read the same verse in the New American Standard Bible, which is another great translation, there's a footnote there that says, this passage can be translated this way, not just let him come and drink, but let him keep coming to me and let him keep drinking. Keep coming, keep drinking. This is God's call to you. If you are, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, and you said, yes, I, I've come and I've drank, I've, I've, I've got salvation. He's saying, no, keep coming, keep drinking. I will sustain you, I have more for you that you need. You see, this offer, this call from Christ, it's personal and it's generous and it's oh so sincere. And here's how we know it's a sincere offer. Because this is a man who's about to die. He will soon meet death. He says a couple chapters later, I will be with you just a, a little while longer. People who are only going to be around for a little while longer, you should take their words very seriously. You see, this Jesus would soon be struck down. Just like that rock in Exodus 17, there's this rock that Moses is called to, to strike the rock. And when he strikes the rock, what happens? Water flows out of it. Water that feeds the nation, that, that quenches the thirst of that nation of Israel. Just like that rock, Jesus, in this very city of Jerusalem, would be struck repeatedly and pierced. Not just struck by the blows of Roman soldiers. He would be struck by the very wrath of God. And the result of that striking and that beating down and that breaking would be rivers of living water flowing out for you. You see, Jesus is on the verge of offering himself up as a, as a sacrifice in this very city. And right now, he's in the middle of a festival offering himself up to all who will come. Do you see the, the heart? And what I really want us to see here is the heart of Jesus for you behind this call. His heart is more open to you than yours is to him. 
This is the heart of the same God who said, as we read at the outset of our service today, Isaiah 55, he says, come, everyone who thirsts. This is the prophet Isaiah speaking words that would be repeated, would be echoed by Jesus centuries later. The prophet Isaiah speaking for God says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Do you hear the heart of God behind that? This is God pleading the way you would plead with a child you love. He's saying, why are you spending your money on that? It's not going to help you. You're poisoning yourself. Come to me and I'll give you real bread and real water. He says, you labor for that which does not satisfy. Why? Listen diligently to me and eat what's good. And delight yourself in rich food. He's saying, learn to delight in what I have for you. It's much better than the food you've been gorging yourself on. And and if you want to know what does it mean to come to Jesus, what does it mean to come to him? I think verse 3 unpacks that a little bit. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make you an everlasting covenant. You see, coming to Jesus includes listening to him, bending ourselves in to hear what he has to say to us, believing what he has to say to us, and then entering into a covenant relationship with him that he brings us into. See, how are covenants formed? Covenants formed when people take vows, just like we did just a moment ago as we went through that church membership covenanting process. If you're married, you went through a covenanting process when you made promises. You see what's happening here. God is saying, come to me. I will make promises to you, binding promises to you. And through these promises, if you hear them and you believe them and you accept them, you will be in an everlasting relationship with me, the God who made you for himself. It's it's an inclusive offer. There's only one boundary, really, and it's, You need to be thirsty. And to come to him means to believe in him. Believe in him. See, in that sense, it's an exclusive offer because it's an offer that can only be fulfilled in Jesus. There's no other way to find the kind of living water that he's talking about. There's no other way to get the Spirit of God. There's no other way to to, to find acceptance with God other than through coming to this one man, Jesus. Let's look at the responses to this call. Responses. The first one, I like to call it the sound of confusion. That's what you get. There's a, there's a range of responses. It's, it's a mixed response. But let's look at the, the first section here, verse 40 to 44. I call it the voice of confusion. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him, and some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. You see the confusion here. Some are saying, I think this might be the prophet, and by that they mean this prophet who was promised um, back in, uh, in Deuteronomy 22, I think, by the, by, uh, was promised to Moses. God promises that one day he's going to send this prophet along who's going to be better than Moses. They're saying, I think that this might be that prophet. And others are saying, oh, I think this is the Christ. He's the Messiah, the Savior that God promised. 
they're confused because what they didn't realize is that the prophet and the Messiah were one person. Jesus was a fulfillment of both those prophecies. They didn't see that. So they're honestly just kind of, uh, my kids use the word confuzzled. I think they made that word up, but I like it. They were confuzzled. They said, well, well, it can't, well, it really can't be the Messiah because the Messiah was supposed to come from the line of David, from Bethlehem, and this Jesus, he's from Galilee. They just didn't have their facts straight. They didn't realize that Jesus, yes, Jesus' his family is from Galilee, but where was he born? He was born in Bethlehem. And who is he the descendant of? David. They didn't realize that he was in the line of David from Bethlehem and also from Galilee. So they're arguing. Someone arrest him. And then verses 45 through 49, we see another kind of response. So first it's a sound of confusion. Here in verse 45, I think what we see is a heart of pride or hearts filled with pride. Look at this. It says, The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? Why didn't you bring Jesus? You were supposed to arrest him. They had sent these officers to arrest Jesus. Verse 46, The officers said, No, no one ever spoke like this man. I love that line. They said, we, You don't realize if you had heard this man speak, you wouldn't have arrested him either. We've never heard anything like this. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. You hear the pride in what's going on there. What these, these Pharisees, they're, they're kind of like the elite, not just the religious elite, but the intellectual elite. And they're saying, these masses, of course they're going to believe in this guy. They don't know any better. They don't even know the law of God. That's why they're susceptible to being hoodwinked, tricked by this fake savior. They're, they're, they're cynical, these Pharisees are. They're, they're arrogant because they're acting as if we've got all the facts. These guys don't have the facts. We do. They're not smart like us. And if they had all the facts like us, they would see that Jesus is not who he promises to be. They shame those who believe in Jesus. You notice that. They shame those who believe in Jesus. They say, oh, are you, to the, to the officers, oh, are, are you believing in him now too? Are you that stupid? We sent you to, you had one job. We sent you to do it. You didn't do it. Now are you his followers too? Condescending, belittling those who believe in Jesus. And, and frankly, I'm not, I don't want to overgeneralize, but I have experienced some of this in my life, and maybe you have too. There are some who would arrogantly look at Christians in this way. Shame Christians for believing in Jesus. Cynically and arrogantly condescend, condescendingly criticize followers of Christ and say, clearly you don't, clearly you don't have all the facts and clearly you're not that smart and clearly you haven't properly investigated these claims. They say, look, none of the Pharisees have believed. Why do they say that? They're saying, those of the elite, the smart folks in the room, we haven't believed in him. Shouldn't that tell you something? You see the arrogance. I, I, I used to work at a university in New Jersey as an adjunct professor, and one day we were in a, a faculty meeting, all these colleagues and and I was the only guy there 
that I knew of who was a, a follower of Christ. Um, there were, I had friends there. We had friends and good colleagues. Um, but I was the only person there who was a Christian. And I was often reminded of that in conversations. One day I was in a meeting and, and my boss was talking about her childhood for some reason and, and, and said something like, you know, I was brought up in a really Christian, devoutly Christian environment. She said, but then as I got older, I thought my way out of it. She says, I thought my way out of it. And as she said those words, she looked up at me and, and she kind of like met my eyes and she says, I, I thought my way out of it. And it just, her look just kind of hung there and she looked at me and I felt like cut and shamed. And then I looked and other people in the room were looking at me too. And they had this strange look of like, like pity? Smirk, some of them. And I felt the kind of, have you ever felt that? That piercing, kind of cutting shame. I think that's what these Pharisees are exuding. That kind of aggressive shaming. But, but, but what I think I had to realize in that moment, and I realize it here as I read John chapter 7, is beneath the self-satisfied smugness of these Pharisees, there hides a deep insecurity. These men aren't just acting like arrogant folks, they're acting like threatened, arrogant folks. They're scared. Because what if this Jesus is who he claims to be? If he is who he claims to be, then these men stand to lose admiration and status and, in, and their position, they stand to lose their acceptance within the community. If Jesus turns out to be the one he claims to be, then these men will have to humble themselves and worship him and obey him. And, and so in their arrogance and in their aggressiveness, there, there's something of a defensiveness. And it comes through in other parts of the Gospel of John even more clearly, you see, those men, they, they, they don't seem thirsty, but they are thirsty. They're thirsty for admiration, thirsty to maintain their status, thirsty for power and to be followed by the people in their community. They're even thirsty as Pharisees. They were thirsty for acceptance with God, but they're seeking to quench all those thirsts in the wrong place. Jesus speaks to them with compassion. A compassion that I have to confess was not in my heart in that conference room that day. A compassion that says, even you, thirsty, come to me. Rivers of living water is what I'll give you. Lastly, there's, a, there's a, a third kind of response here from the people. I call it the voice of reason. The voice of reason. It's in verse 50 and 51. It says there, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus before, and who was one of them, that is one of the Pharisees, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? 
Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Nicodemus, he's making his second appearance in the Gospel of John. He appeared for the first time back in John chapter 3. And in John chapter 3, we see him coming to Jesus. In fact, that very word is used. It says in John chapter 3 that Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, came to Jesus by night. It's interesting. And here we see him. And, and what comes, what, what I see when I look at Nicodemus in, in John 7 is a kind of humility, but, but a, a principled courage as well. He's still got questions, it seems, about who Jesus is. But what does he say? He appeals to his colleagues by saying, wait a second, doesn't, doesn't our law tell us that we shouldn't prejudge people, but that we should ask questions and find out what they're about before we condemn them? He appeals to their shared values. And there's this humble, sincere inquisitiveness about him. And what gets me about it is that it's an active, honest curiosity. He was so curious that he went to go speak to Jesus back in chapter 3, which was a risky move. He did it at night because it was a risky move. He went and he asked. He wanted to get to know Jesus. And it seems like he's still trying to figure out who Christ is. His active curiosity drove him to visit Christ. You see, some of us might say, I've got questions about the gospel. I've got questions about whether or not Jesus is who he says he is. But what do we do with those questions? Some of us, I fear, might say, I have questions. I'm not ready to believe. But we sit on those questions, and we don't actively pursue answers to those questions. And so, one's left to wonder if they're really honest questions. Maybe what we have is an unwillingness to submit to Jesus as Lord. So if you've got questions, what what do you have to do with them? You've got to take them to Jesus and ask them. Seek to resolve those questions. Look to the scriptures to resolve those questions. Study the Bible with someone who knows Jesus and figure out answers to those questions. Talk to people who know Jesus and find out if they can help you with those questions. And if they can, maybe they can connect you with other people and other resources who can help you with those questions. You see, questions are not an excuse for you to come to him. Questions are more reason for you to come to him and get some answers. Verse 50, it says that Nicodemus was one of them, one of these Pharisees. He he shared their culture. He shared their education. He shared many of their values. He was a member of that group. But how do they treat him as soon as he seems to even show a shade of sympathy for Christ? They shame him. They shame him. They say, oh, are you from Galilee too? I can picture them laughing, right? This is a joke. It sounds like a joke. Are you from Galilee too? They knew he wasn't from Galilee. But he's saying, are you from that same town? Are you predisposed to believe in this guy too? Was he a neighbor of yours? And then they say these words. They say, search the scriptures, Nicodemus. Come on, and you will see that no prophet ever came from Galilee. By the way, they're wrong on that. Kind of embarrassingly wrong because they're Pharisees and they're supposed to know better. But there are prophets in the Old Testament who came from Galilee. In fact, our discipleship groups are right now studying Jonah 
Guess where Jonah was from? Galilee, bingo. He's from a, if you read in, there in, 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 in uh, 2 Kings 14, it says that he was from a place called Gath Hefer, and Gath Hefer is a region in, sub region within Galilee. You see, but these, these Pharisees were so self satisfied, they, they, they're basically approaching this whole situation saying, We know what we have to know, we've already got the answer. Where are you on this spectrum? That's a question we want to end with. How are you responding to Jesus? How are you now? Not how have you responded, but now. How are you responding to Jesus? Where are you on the spectrum? Can you locate yourself anywhere here? Maybe you might say, well, it's complicated. I don't know exactly where I sit on this spectrum. If you would say you are not a follower of Jesus Christ right now, if you would not identify yourself as a follower of Christ, are you confused? Do you still have questions? Are you confused about who he claims to be and about the evidence behind who he claims to be? If you are confused, that's not a bad place to be, by the way. If you've got questions, that, that's, that's not a bad place to be at all. The question is, what will you do with that confusion? What will you do with those questions? If you've grown up or are growing up in a Christian family and you find yourself with some doubts and some queries about like, who can I really believe this? Where's the evidence for this? Who is he really? Did he really do the things that he said he did? Did he really rise from the dead? Those are legitimate questions. But, but here's, the, here's the, the important thing is, what are you doing with those questions? Are you actively inquisitive the way Nicodemus shows himself to be here? Asking, praying, and studying to find out who he is? Or are you obstinate, stubbornly obstinate, like the Pharisees, who are basically saying, nah, my question's been answered. I'm good. I know what I need to know. I've already passed judgment. Jesus is open to you, and he's ready to engage you. Nicodemus came, and then he came again, and he kept coming back to Jesus until he was satisfied, and finally he was. Sometimes people in our culture can have this attitude when it comes to Christianity where they might say, you know, I've studied, you know, I've looked into it, and I've looked at, you know, other religions too, and um, yeah, I, I know, I, I basically know what Christianity is, and I found that I just don't agree. And I've studied other religions, I see good things in these different religions, but no, I've realized it's not, it's not true. And I always find that interesting because I'm like, man, I've been a Christian for I don't know how many years, 20-something years now, and I've been studying Christianity. I went to seminary and I studied my Bible, and I still haven't reached a point where I'm like, yeah, I got it, I understand this. I'm still trying to figure this thing out, right? So if we can reach a point where we can smugly just say, yeah, I've looked into it, not true. That's an indication that we have been too, you have been too quick to raise the judgment. <laughs> You need to cultivate some humble inquisitiveness and go back to the gospel. Go back to the scriptures and investigate. Don't be self-satisfied. What Jesus is saying here is come and come again. You know what he's saying? He's saying, stay thirsty, my friends. Stay thirsty. Keep coming back. And this goes not just for those of you who identify as non-Christians. This goes for members of New Hope Fellowship. This goes for anyone here who says, I am a follower of Jesus. Stay thirsty, my friends. Because Jesus is saying, keep coming back. Because maybe you're still somewhat ignorant about the Bible. 
is what it is, right? Many of us are. Maybe we feel like we're just getting a little less ignorant as time goes on, but we still feel largely ignorant. Maybe you still feel confused about things that are in the Bible. And Jesus, that, that's, that's, a, that's a fine place to be. But this is a call to you to come to Jesus and know him more, study his word more fully, move toward maturity and a deeper knowledge and faith in Christ by keeping coming back to him. It's a call to Christians. Or, or I mean, unless you find yourself so self-satisfied, so, so, so content that you can say, yeah, I'm a Christian, I came to him, but I, I know what I need to know about Jesus now, I'm good. Is that where you're at? I've learned what I need to learn. Or is there still this humble, childlike inquisitiveness that's, that's driving you back to him, back to his word, to know more, to learn him more, and to love him more? And one way, one way just kind of to know where you're at on this, one way to know what, what, whether or not you're still inquisitive and desiring to know Jesus more or whether or not you feel self-satisfied, like, yeah, I got it. I got this gospel thing. I understand it. I know God. Yeah. How do we figure out where we are? One way for you to determine that is to consider what's your posture toward his word? What is your practice with regard to engaging this word, studying it, reading it, pouring over it, and asking questions over it? How you engage his word and how frequently you engage his word and what depth you engage his word tells you something about whether or not you are self-satisfied in your understanding of God or whether or not you are thirsty and you're coming back and you want more. If you believe, Come and keep coming. Christ's heart remains open to you. And this table that we're about to come to now, it, this table is not for perfect people. It's not for self-satisfied people. It's not for achievers. This table where we take this bread and this cup, this is for thirsty people who feel really weak. This is for victims on the one hand and perpetrators on the other hand. It's for people, anyone, anyone and whoever is thirsting and is coming, repenting and believing in Jesus Christ. That's who this table's for. So, so as we come to this table, know this. The Lord Jesus is offering himself up here, just like he did at that feast. He's saying to us at this table, come and drink and keep coming. That's why we keep coming to the Lord's table over and over again, month after month. Every two weeks, keep coming back, keep coming back. Why? Because we're coming and coming again. It's this repeated reminders, repeated sacrament. He calls us to it. We come to it empty-handed, but we never come uninvited. And we never come unwelcomed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your constant open invitation to come to you. Lord, don't let us ignore and neglect and reject this call. out of love and for your own glory. Move in us by your spirit so that we would take you at this offer and keep coming back. Amen.